0: hey sacred city moline welcome back to virtual church you know i'd be lying if i told you i'm excited to be back in your living room like this honestly it stinks i'm standing in an empty room uh not a soul just me um kind of scrambling here it's saturday night i'm preaching i've never preached on a saturday night before so this is new um but here we are. For the next few weeks, uh, hopefully the next this week, next week, hopefully, fingers crossed, Lord willing, um, this will be the format that we do our Sunday gatherings in. Um, now, the one upside of this is that there's a good chance you're sitting at home, you're wearing your pajamas, and, and I'll be real with you, I'm wearing my slippers right now, so... We're going to do this. We're going to open up God's Word together. Hopefully you've uh, participated in the worship music that we've put together in the liturgy on our YouTube playlist. If not, you can go back and do that. That's there for you. Uh, We want that to serve you and your family as we're at home um, in sort of this uh, impromptu quarantine. Now, I've been asked before, like, what are your favorite topics to preach on? Um, You know, like, I love to preach about union with Christ. I just love that. There's, there's things, you know, like going through, working through books of the Bible and getting to some of the nitty-gritty stuff. And, and I think if you were to ask me what's my least favorite thing to preach about, is it's like the topic that we're coming up on today as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And I just want to give you a heads up. If you're sitting here with your family at home that we are going to be moving in towards some sensitive content here. As Ira Glass says, um, if you listen to This American Life, we are going to acknowledge the existence of sex in this sermon because it's not me, it's Jesus. Jesus is bringing up the topic here as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have young kids, I might suggest sending them to another room uh, if you haven't breached this topic with them yet, letting them color, letting, maybe uh, giving them your phone or something, letting them watch Jesus Storybook Bible or, or uh, Minnow or whatever, Right Now Media, whatever those things are. Maybe they can do that and have their own kids' church um, while we work our way through this. Um, however, if you have got kids that are maybe a little bit older that you've, you've started talking to them about Sexuality, I would highly recommend keeping them in the room. It might feel awkward. It always does. I mean, even if it was a room full of married people, this would still be an awkward conversation. But I think it's very important for us to expose our kids to a biblical worldview when it comes to sexuality. That way, it's it's not just the opinions of the culture that will pull them and that's informing them, because no matter where you turn, that's what's being pushed into their minds, in their brains. It's the culture's view on sexuality, and and the more we talk about this from a biblical perspective, we could round that out. So I I, um, I just ask that you would uh, make that sort of discernment yourselves, and we'll move forward. Uh, I'm going to read the words of Jesus here. Uh, Would you please stand at home with me as we read here? This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we. We ask that your spirit would be working this morning in our living rooms, around our kitchen tables, as we open up the Word of God together. Would you speak to us? Would you open our minds, open our ears to hear you, our hearts to receive what you have for us? Would you show us, God, in maybe a more full perspective, what it looks like to be your disciples, what it means to follow you in the everyday stuff of life? I ask that you would help me to speak um, with precision on this tricky topic. Would you give me um, the insights that are necessary to to speak to your people, to disciple uh, your people and lead them into the abundant life? God, I pray that you would withhold all foolishness from my tongue and help me to lean into your wisdom here without hesitation. Would you give us a vision, God, of what it means to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world? and help us to live in that. Through your Holy Spirit, do these things, we pray. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we have been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. It's chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew's Gospel. Um, Something really profound is happening here. This is perhaps the most important, the most famous, the most talked about discourse that's ever happened in the history of humanity, where Jesus takes his disciples up on a hillside and starts talking to them about this completely new way to live. He's talking about the fact that the kingdom of heaven is here, it's here now, it's present at this very moment when Jesus is speaking, and he's showing, he's talking about, he's teaching these disciples how to live into the kingdom of heaven right here and right now. this reality where the future glory that awaits in heaven for believers reaches back into the present moment and radically reorients people to live a new kind of life by new uh, values and dynamics and a new power. This invitation that Jesus gives to these disciples on the hillside is not only extended to the disciples there in first century, but it's for us as well. It's for every single person in this moment, Jesus is reaching out and speaking through the church, come, come enter into my kingdom, and he he goes through the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are are poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, and he's offering this invitation to come in and to experience the kingdom, and something happens, that when you become a kingdom person, when the gospel of Jesus uh, takes takes root in your heart and changes your life, it, it produces something in you. It makes you into what Jesus says, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He says that Christians ought to live into this world with, with one foot in, in, in the future reality of the kingdom of heaven and one foot in the present reality of this current earth, and we are so tempered and, and, and reoriented in such a way where we become the salt in this bland earth, that we become a light in the dark world. Now, our ability to to live like this, our ability to be kingdom people, to be salt and light, is based on two non-negotiable things, okay? You have to have them both. In fact, this is really what's wrapped up when Jesus is giving the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Um, and, And these things are this. First of all, you have to recognize Jesus as king of the kingdom. In other words, when Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus is saying, I am the king of the kingdom. And with that king, all authority is wrapped up in him. And so he knows this is the beauty of Jesus. And I don't think we lean into this as much as we ought to, but Jesus is the wisest, most powerful person in the world, in the cosmos. In fact, we just got done preaching through the book of Colossians not too long ago that everything belongs to Jesus. Everything is under Jesus' authority. And so Jesus says, well, first of all, to be my disciple, you have to recognize my authority, that Jesus is king over all. And the second part of that is, once you've recognized the authority of Jesus, you obey his commands. The Great Commission goes, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is Jesus talking, not me. I don't have authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. No, he doesn't just say go preach and tell them about the gospel and let them go on their way. He says go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded them. And so we see these two non-negotiable things, recognizing the authority of Jesus and then obeying his commands. This is the essence of being a disciple of Jesus. That, that's the only kind of disciple there is. You're either a disciple of Jesus where you recognize his authority and you obey him or you do, maybe you do one of those things but not the other, but you're still not his disciple. Belief and obedience unite in discipleship. Now, as, as we see belief and obedience united, this puts us on a pathway, a new trajectory. And, and really what Jesus is doing here is he's bringing in First-century Jews who who really value wisdom literature. In fact, most of the old there's a good section of the Old Testament that's wisdom literature. Proverbs, um, the Psalms have some wisdom stuff in there. Ecclesiastes. There's Job. It's all wisdom literature. They loved it. It was it was helpful for them for teaching them how life works. best, But at the same time, Jesus is talking to a Gentile uh, population of people who value philosophy. And and really, what the common ground for both of these schools of thought are is what is the good life? How does life work best and Jesus is saying that when you acknowledge his lordship and obey his commands and you live into that it puts you on the trajectory of the good life in other words acknowledging the authority of Jesus and obeying his commands leads to human flourishing now this is how Jesus saves us from our broken ways humanity it's no secret that we are prone to mess things up okay Um, We have this propensity to make things worse than they ought to be. And Jesus steps into the brokenness that we've left in our wake and he heals and offers us this way of prosperity. Now this is what happens. Jesus offers us the good life. Now the inverse is true as well, that if you reject the lordship of Jesus, if you choose not to obey his commands but do what's wise in your own eyes, this will not go for you. In fact, this is the story that we see repeated over and over in the, New Test- or in the Old Testament where, where people, whether they're, they're God's chosen people or people who are outside of God's covenant, they're trying to do life their own way, define their own good life, and it doesn't go well for them. Jesus doesn't want us to tank our lives. He doesn't want that for us. Jesus desires to save us, to heal us from our brokenness, to prosper us, and he wants to do this, as we see in this passage, in the realm of our sexuality. Now, sexuality matters to Jesus. Sexuality in the church, and according to Jesus, is not an off-limits topic. And unfortunately, sometimes we treat it as such. It's not this taboo thing that we cannot, you know, we can't breach the topic in community. In fact, what's so interesting about this, when Jesus is talking about the dynamics of the kingdom of heaven, like this is how the kingdom of heaven works. He's teaching us basically the equivalent of gravity in the kingdom of heaven. He talks about relationships. This whole thing, the rest of chapter five, when he's talking about the dynamics of the kingdom is, is all under the umbrella of how should relationships Work. And last week he talked about, you know, anger, right? Like, to t- steer clear of anger, because if you're, you're angry towards your brother, you've murdered him in your heart, essentially, is what he's saying. And now he, he shifts into the discussion of, of uh, sexuality. So to be a kingdom person, to be a person of the kingdom of God, to be a disciple of Jesus means that your relationships, especially your relationships that have a sexual nature, must be redefined by Jesus. Sexuality is a huge part of relationships with vast implications, huge implications. So much so, Jesus says that a defunct sexuali- a defunct sexuality will land you in hell. Seems kind of severe, right? Now a typical response to that when we see Jesus' word, when he's getting talk he gets to the end of that in verse um, twenty-nine and twenty-eight, he's like you're talking about your whole body going into hell. We might listen to this and I'm like, oh, here, here's another turn or burn sermon, right? Jesus telling me how bad I am, trying to scare me a little bit. Now, I think that's our tendency, like as we live in a highly sexualized, sexualized culture, now the real trick is gonna see how many times I mess that word up. Um, we live in a highly sexualized culture, and, and here's what I mean. Like there are advertisements that are selling hamburgers that for some reason require a scantily dressed woman. Why in the world, like I love me. I don't need I don't need that. But this highly sexualized culture tells us that that sex sells and so when we are steeped in this culture, we hear Jesus take this what, what seems like a very radical approach to sexuality and sort of brush him off, right? We say, "Come on. Come on, Jesus, don't be so archaic. You're living in the old age." It's, it's only lust, it's only sex. You don't have to get so worked up about it. It's, it's natural, isn't it, right? These are natural desires. So, and, and really, when you think about it, it doesn't do any harm, right? These are all sort of cadences, mantras that our culture throws around when it comes to this conservative sex ethic. But the point of what Jesus is saying here in this passage isn't to scare you into purity. He's not trying to make Christians a bunch of prudes. It's way more nuanced than that. Jesus is giving us a completely redeemed, a completely renewed view of sex. It's a more robust and more glorious understanding of sex than what the culture offers. And it shows us Jesus, Jesus elevates sex to this glorious and beautiful place. And he offers us this flourishing, like to, to uphold this sexual ethic that Jesus speaks of puts us on this path of flourishing that comes when purity and passion are united. See, this is the foundational point where Jesus and our culture depart on the topic of sexuality. Jesus has a high view of sexuality and our culture has a very low very small, very flat view of sexuality. It's a high use, low value. Okay, so, so everything is sex, yet it's valued so low. We treat it like it's a consumer good or service to be exchanged, a commodity that's deployed to serve our own desires and wants. And when sex is used in this u- purely utilitarian way, when its main aim is to satisfy self, it is destructive and it's dangerous. Not only that, it's so dangerous that it leads us, it it devolves into what could potentially be oppressive and straight up perverted. Now what we need to understand here is that like the, the bar that Jesus puts isn't just like really high above a good sexual ethic. Like Jesus is, like this is what a good sexual ethic is and it just happens to be very high. Anything short of Jesus' teaching on sexuality is not only wrong, okay? It's not only wrong, but it's inhumane. It's making people less Human, sexuality outside of Jesus' design devalues personhood by devaluing the Imago Dei. It doesn't look at people as, as, as souls, embodied souls to love, who are made to reflect the Creator. See, the culture's view is that of objectification. Therefore, Our sexual ethic has to be underneath the lordship of Jesus. And anything that's not is incompatible with the kingdom of heaven living. Jesus is offering us into. Or in other words, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus and disagree with him on his sexual ethics. This is part of it. You either acknowledge his lordship, acknowledge his authority and obey it, or you reject it. Now with all this, I've I've made a lot of big statements so far. Let's dive into this teaching of Jesus. Take a look here at verses 27 um, through 30 here. Please read with me. Jesus says here, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. Now, We've seen this a couple times, or we've seen this once, and we're going to see it several more times here as we round out chapter five, where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say, and it's, he's doing something very interesting. He said, when, he, when he's saying, you've heard it said, he's going back to God's original commandments, something that's in the Torah somewhere, and specifically this one, he's quoting the seventh commandment. Which is, you should not commit adultery. We, this is written on the stone tablets when God gave it to Moses. This is a, a foundational piece of God's um, guardrails for human flourishing as he gives it to the nation of Israel. And, and one of this things, the, the, number seven on the list is do not commit adultery. Now we have to ask this question, what is adultery? It's, it's language that we don't necessarily use very often these days. Adultery is any violation of God's eternal design for sexuality. Okay, I I want to highlight the word eternal design. So from the time marriage was created to the time that marriage ends, which marriage won't end because we're told in the new heavens, new earth, the the lamb is married to the bride, okay? There's the bride and the bridegroom. Marriage is gonna be eternal. And in God's design for sexuality, God's design for marriage is one man, And one woman in lifelong covenant of marriage. That's what it is. That's the only place, according to God, that is appropriate for sexual activity. Anything outside of that is considered adultery. Okay, so it's not just sleeping with a married person. But anything that, that is, any sexual activity that happens outside of, of the context of biblical marital covenant. Now this includes, but definitely is not limited, things like pornography, um, the apps and sexting and stuff that, that commoda, commodifies um, sexual interaction, homosexuality, cohabitation. right? All of these things are a sort of perversion Right? It's outside of the bounds of God's design for sexuality. Now the reason that God says, hey, this is, sex is meant for marriage is because marriage is the only context where sex is safe. And I'm not talking about a contraceptive here. I'm talking about marriage being safe in terms of personhood and human flourishing. Think, think about it in, in terms of a fire. Um, fire has the potential to be both beautiful and destructive. To be, to be dangerous and delightful. We just moved into a new home and, and we were sort of re- renovating our fireplace. Um, and, and I can't wait to sit in front of the fireplace here as the winter creeps in. You know, just sort of soak in the warmth, the comfort. Be mesmerized by the flames as they shoot up. It's, it's a beautiful thing, right? Fire in the fireplace is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's delightful. But if fire were to escape from the fireplace, it can be destructive. Your house can go up in a matter of moments. It's so dangerous. And sex has the same properties. There is this this delightfulness that can come with sex when it's in the right confines, within the confines of heterosexual, biblical covenant marriage. And it can be destructive when it's outside of that. Now, the reason for this is because something profound happens when sex is underway. Okay, something crazy, something that, that's so hard to wrap our, our minds around is, is that you're actually being united to someone more than just physically. It, there, there's an emotional, there's a, a, a relational, there's a spiritual dimension of this unit, un, uh, this, when you're united to one another. In fact, this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6. He says it's not just, it's just physical, it's not just emotional, or it's, it's emotional, it's, it's spiritual. There's something profound. Something happens that when you take your body and, and get it to the most vulnerable and exposed state that it could possibly be, in, that makes you want to do the same thing with your soul. And if you enter into a physical relationship where you can't do what you've done with your bodies, with your soul, then there's going to be dysfunction that happens within this. Like your soul is going to be looking for something that it can't get, no matter how well you define the relationship in advance. Not only that, not only does it complicate that, that, you know, that relationship right there, but when sex is done outside of marriage, it, it spoils, it frustrates, it upsets, and complicates whatever future union you might have. Now, this is a major reason why counselors and psychiatrists are books booked weeks in advance, okay? Like, th- this, this is the boat right sexual sin is the boat that creates these relational wakes in marriage that, that that just cause issues in the immediate context right not just 9 months later when you find you're you're unexpectedly uh, expecting But years and decades down the road, when your marriage gets to a point where you're having intimacy issues, where you're struggling with self-worth and value problems, it's all sort of wrapped up into what happens earlier on in our life. Now, if sex were just a physical thing, which is what what our culture wants us to believe, right? Oh, it's just sex. It's It's just a physical thing. You don't have to have your heart in it. If sex were just a physical thing, this would not be the case at all. What happens when you have sex is that your whole life gets entangled with that other person. And so this is one of the reasons why our culture's view of sex is so small and so inhumane. Right? You, you, it's offering you this momentary um, unification, right? this entanglement, only to get it ripped apart. And you know, like if you've got a piece of tape and you, adhes- you adhesive it to the wall or whatever you're going to put it on, you rip it off, the next time you go to use that tape, it's not going to adhere as well as it did in the first time. There's something that messes up with the the bonds that will come afterwards. And so this is why you look at Tinder and hookups and pornography and cohabitation and sex outside of marriage and you know like these things are messing you up more than just in a physical way. Right, but but in a, in a mental, emotional, spiritual, it sabotages it sabotages you and it sabotages future relationships. This is why it's like this sets you on, on like a subhuman trajectory for life. Like, if this is the way that you live, it's impossible for you to flourish. It's impossible. Like, just think of all the other relationship implications that this has, how it affects your relationship with God. How can you engage with God? How can you have a a, a deep relationship with God if your heart is constantly going back and forth and you feel two-faced about it all? There's no integrity in it. You feel this brokenness. But Jesus values humanity. Jesus wants us to flourish. And so he upholds the the seventh commandment and he adds to it, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now I said this last week. Now I think one of the misconceptions that happens as we come to the Sermon on the Mount is to think that Jesus is actually elevating the standard of goodness. That Jesus is taking the bar that people have to get over in order to enter into the kingdom or to be kingdom people and lifting it up from what God had originally said. But that's not the case. What Jesus is doing is he's exposing the heart of God's initial commandments. See, God didn't want people just to stay out of other people's beds. Like he, he wanted to protect uh, the, the purity, the, 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 the sacredness of relationships. And so Jesus is moving into this. And he says, it's more than just behavior modification. It's just more than uh, controlling your external actions. Jesus is trying to reorient our hearts. And so he speaks to, he addresses the internal seed, which is lust, that produces the external fruit of adultery. Just like last week, anger is the seed and murder is the fruit. Like Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. And, and, and Willard says this, D- Dallas Willard says, that if the seed is there, the only thing that's lacking for it to turn into the fruit is opportunity. That should scare you. If the seed is there, all it will take to get that thing to come out to bloom into the ugliness that it that it is is the opportunity. That's why Jesus addresses the heart he's got. He says, hey, don't, don't lust. Now, we've got to ask this question. What's Jesus talking about when he talks about lust? What is this lustful intent? Now, in general, the Bible talks a lot about lust. And believe it or not, lust is not purely a sexual thing. Okay, we we talk about lust uh, a lot in the realm of sexuality um, but lust really applies to a lot of different areas. Another word that's used for it is covetousness, which happens to also be one of the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses, right? The, the generic definition of lust is a nagging desire for something that's not yours. Okay, so it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I want that, but have this nagging desire, this sort of obsession, this covetousness, this drive to get something that you don't have where it becomes unhealthy for you and for that thing, right? that would be considered lust. Where it dominates your mind space. It dominates your affections. It dominates your wallet. Now Jesus takes this word of lust and he applies it to the sexual realm where he's talking about a nagging longing for somebody else's body. Now you might be like What's the harm in that? Like, what's the heart in looking at somebody and wanting, wanting that? See, the issue comes back down to this. Like, you're reducing somebody to just their physical appearance. It becomes objectification of a person. You're re- reducing that person's value down to their physical appearance, their physical attributes. And you're saying, I want that. I don't care what kind of personality they have. I don't care what, what sort of accomplishments they have under their belt. I don't care. I just want their body. See, that is, a, that is an evil way to look at someone. See, this is one of the reasons why pornography is, such, is so hideous. This is why any sort of the, those, those traps are so deadly and dangerous destructive is because you're looking at a human being, somebody created in the image of God and you're saying yeah they're just an object to me it's wicked but it doesn't just harm that person it doesn't just devalue that person but it actually harms the luster as well Proverbs 6 Solomon asked his son, Can a a man carry fire close to his chest and not get burned? Right? That's what lust is. It's taking the burn of adultery and holding it into our chest. Now, you hold fire to your chest, you're going to get burned. Right? It's going to mess you up. So, So, this lust is not only sin against the person that you're lusting for, but you're actually sinning against yourself and being destructive by inflicting pain you're defiling yourself you're defiling that other person and you're viewing yourself and that person on a subhuman level and jesus says there's more there's more for you than this now it's a slippery slope because jesus it's like okay so you know you cross the line adultery is clearly crossing the line jesus says lust if you lust You're crossing the line, but Jesus even takes it a step further where he's not just saying don't lust, but he says to look at a woman with lustful intent. So the intent means preemptively, like if I look at someone, if if I'm going to look at a woman with the intent of lusting after her, fixating my mind, my desires around her, that look in itself is sinful, it's not just that lust is bad, it's the, the intent to lust Jesus is denouncing. Now when Jesus talks about looking at a woman with lustful intent, he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean don't look, like, like you should just keep your eyes to the ceiling and walk around trying not to make eye contact with anybody. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Because one of the things that we, the, the, one of the privileges that we're afforded as Christians is to admire beauty, all beauty. Beauty is God's beauty. And so, like, surely God has made beautiful people, and we could look at somebody and say, Yeah, that's a beautiful person. But there's a vast difference, right? And sometimes it's a gray line between acknowledging beauty and obsessing about something, to have that desirous longing for somebody that's not yours. See, Jesus is talking about this longing fixation, this intent that we have. That's a problem. And what it's equated to is like feeding a lion cub, okay? Yeah, you know, they're, they're cute and cuddly. I don't know, you see them on YouTube or whatever. It's like, oh, yeah, I think I could get a lion one day. I think would be a good pet selection. And you feed that animal, and guess what? Eventually, that thing's gonna grow up. And eventually, that thing's gonna get hungry, and you don't feed it enough. And eventually, that thing's gonna come after you and devour you if you're not Careful, right? Just ask Exotic Joe. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. See, if we give sin an inch, it will want to take a mile. And and the more mileage it takes on you, the more it drives you down further and further and further into the sea of futility. It's going to shipwreck you. It's that serious. This isn't something that we can just brush off and say, oh, yeah, yeah, no big deal. Jesus says it's that serious. You need to be so on guard, so diligent. In fact, in in verse 29 and 30, Jesus says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And then the same thing later on. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it out. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus is saying this is a serious issue. And to downplay it is a grave mistake. See, this this issue, this lust issue, this adultery issue will make or break your eternity. See, it has that kind of potential for you. Now, culture wants to tell you it's not that big of a deal. That's a straight up lie. Because Jesus is saying sexual sin will cause you to total your life. You'll ruin it. You'll wreck it. It's like a car, right? You hit a deer, it's about that time of year you've got to pay attention to deer, right? They're coming out during harvest. You hit a deer, your car's probably going to be totaled. And what does that mean? When the car's totaled, it can't carry out its function anymore. That car, that hunk of machinery is alienated from its original design to move around the streets and get people from point A to point B. See, Jesus is trying to show us here, hell is the junkyard of human souls, right? That's where human souls go when they're totaled. What does it mean for a human soul to be totaled? It means you can't love. You can't can't love like you were meant to love, right? You you can't have that, that bond, that connection. You won't flourish, you become so self-centered that, that everything is about serving your desires that you have no way, no bandwidth, not, not, not even a blip on the radar, an idea to think about how can I serve somebody else. It's totally self-centered and vile. See, that's what a totaled soul looks like. And the more sexual sin that you partake in, the more your soul gets totaled. And that's why Jesus says it's going to land you in the junkyard of hell. You'll be alienated from others. Not only that, but alienated from God. And the irony is here, it's like, what sex outside of the context of marriage offers you is the opportunity to be close to somebody physically, but what's happening is emotionally, spiritually, you're getting further and further and further away, you're getting alienated. Now, this isn't, clearly, this is not a low bar. This this is not an easy sexual ethic to abide by. Now, according to the standard, it's not a small minority of, of people who would qualify as sexual sinners, people who are incapable of upholding this command of Jesus. This not only condemns prostitutes, fornicators, cohabitators, homosexuality, it condemns Everyone, anyone who's, who's looking, probably right now, anybody who's looking at a screen right now has probably, at one time or another, l- I know this for a fact, I don't even have to qualify, you have lusted. You have coveted someone else. And, and maybe it's like, you, you know, it, it's like, well, I don't really, you know, attraction, like physical attraction isn't that big of a deal to me. You, you've probably coveted in other ways, right? You've looked at that guy who's married to somebody else and said, Oh man, I wish my husband was like him. Right, that's coveting, that's lusting. See, you and I are sexual sinners. That, that's not, that shouldn't be a secret. But what does that mean for us? Does that mean that game, it's, it's game over, right? We just have to, to plaster the scarlet letter on us and walk around as one who's been condemned? Not if we entrust ourselves into the hands of the healing king. See, not only does Jesus have all authority, all wisdom, all power, not only does he teach us the way to go, but when we have violated his commands, the hands of our king are healing hands. Jesus wants to restore us. He gives us grace to fix what's been broken. He binds up our wounds. He fixes our failures. See, when we have been when we have sinned against others and and violated our own humanity, Jesus offers us forgiveness and restoration. And we see this in that as we are busy sort of dehumanizing ourselves in sexual sin, you know, if that were to work itself out to the greatest extent, the fullest extent, we'd end up a miserable, painful, lonely death. But Jesus took that death in our place. See, Jesus on the cross, we're told that every sin was laid upon him. He who knew no sin. See, Jesus Jesus went through his whole life perfectly upholding his own standard. Not one time in his life did he look lustfully at a woman. Not one time did he have this, this... bent and perverted sexual mentality. Jesus' thoughts were pure all of the time. And you and I, we look at how in the world could this possibly be. I don't know. Jesus did it though. And Jesus was sinless where we sinned and on the cross all of our sin, all of our sexual sin was placed upon him. And in that moment, the, the sky darkened Depressing, and Jesus felt the alienation that we should feel because of our sexual sin. Jesus felt that the Father turned his face from him. People rejected him. His disciples moved away from him. Even not a single person was there standing beside him. Jesus was alienated. He experienced the dehumanization that our sexual sin should do to us. And God poured his wrath out upon him. And by faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, our wounds are healed, and we are restored to humanity. So this is the reality here. In Christ, there is no one beyond grace. There is no one beyond the healing from your sexual sins. I know people have to hear this. Jesus wants you Jesus wants to take you in and change you and bring you to the beauty that you were meant to have. Now, if we were just to leave it there and say, Jesus forgives us, right? Oh, we can just, you know, Jesus always has grace for us, so it doesn't matter if we sin sexually. It's no big deal, right? That's cheap grace. Bonhoeffer talks about this. The gospel is not a gospel of cheap grace, Jesus offers us a costly grace, a grace that costs his own life, but here's the crazy thing, that when Jesus went to the cross, and he came, he ascended into heaven, he sent us the Holy Spirit to make real to us the power of the gospel. So it doesn't mean we just keep bopping along doing the sin that we were doing before we met Jesus. Jesus, he frees us from sin's punishment on the cross, and he frees us from its power by giving us the Holy Spirit to resist temptation to resist sexual sin, and by implanting this gospel power inside of us, we are enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to live according to his ways. So this sexual ethic that Jesus has isn't just a high bar that we can't get over. It's something that the Holy Spirit helps us to strive toward one day at a time, And the way that this Holy Spirit does this, it gives us a power of a new affection. Thomas Chalmers talks about this, the expulsive power of a new affection. When When you love something that's bad for you, the only way to get rid of it, the only way to be able to push it to the side is to find something that's more compelling, something that's more beautiful, something that's more just enrapturing of your imagination, of your heart, of every desire. And for us, Jesus, is that thing that's better. Jesus is better than sex. His love for us is so strong that keeps us and holds us and makes us feel the intimacy that we should not feel because of our sin. And because of this powerful new affection that we have for Jesus, it it overrides those small desires that we have for sex. It, It helps us fight sexual sin. And without the gospel power at work, we wouldn't be able to do any of this right we'd be left with in despair but jesus is calling us as kingdom power through the power of the holy spirit to live into this sexual ethic and as we do so we learn how to value humanity see the gospel the gospel gives us a lot of things the gospel. But here in the context and the discussion of sexuality, the gospel enables us to value humanity, to look at someone and see that they've been created beautifully and fearfully, wonderfully made in the image of God. They aren't an object to covet, but a brother or sister to love. Now, the, the older movie, When Harry Met Sally, the whole movie really revolves around this question, can men and women be friends without sex? In the secular world, I don't know. I, I'm not very optimistic about it. I think there, there's prone to be some sort of, um, you know, some sort of uh, exploitation of sexuality. But in the gospel, men and women can be friends without having any of this ill desire. See, because the gospel makes us more humane so we can see our brothers and sisters for who they really are. We're not objectifying. See, this is what frees the church to love one another genuinely, right? Whether single or married, right? For, for, for me as a married man, to have a brotherly affection for another woman who's married to my brother, right? That is the sort of beauty, the, the genuine love that the church has for one another. Different kinds of loves, but a brotherly affection means that we don't view people as commodities, we don't look at the other sex as as a a conquest, but it's my brother or my sister in Christ. It's somebody that I am meant to love with the love of Christ. See, this is the beauty of the kingdom dynamics of sexuality. It provides for us a completely new way to, to live purely, a way to be genuine in this world without seeking our own motives. Now, not only is this liberating, Right? But it's also validating to the personhood of other people. It validates, it liberates, but then here's the cool thing it intensifies the pleasure and passion when sex is put in the fireplace. See, when you have gospel purity, The intimacy that you will experience in your marriage, the joy, the passion, the romance intensifies. It's intoxicating, it's beautiful, it's because you have been able to give yourself wholly to that other person. See, this is what Jesus is aiming to protect, to to value the humanity of others, but also to preserve the sanctity of marriage. See, this is the only place where you can be naked and unashamed, where you can be Fully known and fully loved and still feel safe. This is the beauty of marriage. And here's the scandal of the gospel. Jesus doesn't want to withhold goodness from us. Jesus doesn't want to, to, he's not stingy with pleasure. Jesus wants to give us life to the fullest. And the way that 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 happens is through a gospel sex ethic. By giving us a high view of sexuality and the power to live it. That's the only way you can do it. And this has a radical implication for relationships within the church, outside of the church, how you view other people. And the gospel is the only way to do this. Now that's the end of my sermon. I always, when I preach this, I always, like, man, I wish I could spend some more time working through some application stuff and so I'm gonna do this. This is, a, this is bonus content to the sermon. Practical things. I wanna speak first to married couples. One of the ways that you fight against sexual sin, you fight against lust, is to enjoy the privileges of marriage frequently. Right? The best way to fight lust is to have frequent intimacy with your spouse. This is a grace from God. Paul talks about, you know, if there's gonna be times where you decide to abstain from sex, right? You're fasting, you're, you're working through something. Um, you know I don't know you're spiritual you're trying to asking God to do something in your life maybe you're going to fast from sex but he's like don't do it for long come together because the enemy wants to disrupt you he wants to, to, to dismantle you to devour you when you're not frequently engaged in intimacy with your spouse this is a this is a gift guys I'm going to say it. Christians should have the best sex. Married Christians should have the best sex because it's a foretaste of what's to come. It's pointing forward, and as good as sex is, it's only going to get better than new heavens new earth. Now, with that, there is this unhealthy dynamic in marriages where sex gets withheld as a bargaining chip, right? Oh, if he did this, then I guess, you know, tonight I'll do that, you know, or, or... or if not. Oh, he's been kind of crummy. I guess I got a headache tonight. I'm going to It's like there's always going to be an excuse not to do it. If you're withholding sex from your spouse, that's not only going to disrupt your physical intimacy, that's going to disrupt every other avenue of intimacy in that relationship. Marriage is a full giving of oneself. Don't withhold. To the unmarried people, it's rough. I'm not going to lie. Fighting for purity is hard work, but l- listen to this. It's worth it. Honor your future spouse. And, and I'm not just saying, like, you might be with the person that you're going to marry someday, and you say, hey, it's no big deal. We're going to be married, so it, why does it matter? It's like, you don't know that. Jesus says, you know, tomorrow's not guaranteed. You don't know that. So honor your future spouse, whoever that might be, and the sanctity of marriage by fighting for purity, even if it ca- comes at a great cost. Jesus talked about it. If it's gonna cost you your eye, get rid of your eye. If it's gonna cost your hand, get rid of your hand. Count the cost. So that might mean you need to move out. That might mean you need to find a new place to live. Might ne- mean you need to break up from somebody who you're in a toxic relationship with. You need to de- delete that app. You need to put a, um, some sort of... Um, uh, software on your computer to, to block certain sites You need to have some sort of accountability partners if, if you've If you have felt Your life being totaled By sexual sin You might need to pursue some counseling right? Open up to, to somebody that you trust Speak about it in your fight club Find healing Pursue that in community And in the gospel And, and don't for a minute Think that giving in to this momentary satisfaction, this momentary fl- pleasure is going to make you happy. It's not. It's going to bring guilt. It's going to trouble your conscience. Don't sabotage your future by giving in to this instant gratification. And so in the meantime, until God provides that spouse, immerse yourself in church life. Devote yourself to your missional community. Find ways to serve and to love and to be embedded in that community. And in this community, God is going to make you, through the gospel, become the godly person that your future spouse is looking for. Invest your time wisely. Don't be foolish. And listen, if you are foolish, there's grace. There's grace for forgiveness and there's grace for change. Now men, I've hit some of this stuff, men and women, a couple things. you got to get software. If it's an issue for you, get software. Talk to people about it. Don't steal those second looks. Guard your eyes. Jesus will later on talk about how the eyes are, are the window to the soul, right? Guard your eyes. Make your wife your standard for beauty. You, you don't measure your wife up to other women, the Instagram models or whatever garbage is out there. Your wife is the standard of beauty and she's killing it. Take initiative here. Be romantic. Don't be a dummy, right? Invest yourself in your wife so she eagerly wants to give herself to you. And women, ladies, Christian ladies, it breaks my heart to see godly women with dirtbags. People, men that phone it in that don't love Jesus. If you're single right now, don't settle for a dirt bag. Okay? Trust that God will provide that man if it be his will. Also, modesty is virtuous. Like Jesus is speaking mostly to men here, right? He says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, clearly he's talking to guys. This is. Typically, a guy issue, although statistically speaking, more and more women are using pornography and having sexual issues. It's just how it is. But one of the ways you can love your brothers is by dressing modestly. If you wouldn't put your daughter in it, if you wouldn't want to see your niece wearing it, you probably shouldn't wear it. It's a way to, to really to protect your own dignity and to help your brother keep him from sinning. It's his responsibility, but you can help him. And everybody, accountability. Find people who can hold you accountable, guys. And as we do this together, as we press into the gospel, as we fight for purity, as we desire to listen to Jesus, to acknowledge his authority and obey his commands, trust that he is making us into these kingdom people that he wants us to be through the gospel. That's our only hope. We can't muster this up in ourselves. We need Jesus. Father, we thank you that you have provided a way for us We are wayward, we are sinners, we are sexual sinners. And time and time again, we find ourselves sabotaging ourselves. We find ourselves dehumanizing other people. Give us eyes primarily for you. Be our vision, O Lord. Help us to desire Jesus more than anything else in this world, and and for those of us who are married, God, help us to, to give ourselves to our spouse wholeheartedly so there's nothing else to give to anybody else in a romantic way. Make the men in this church one-women men. Make the women in this church godly and respectable, modest and virtuous. Help us to honor you, Lord, in all that we do, especially in our sexuality. God, be near to those right now who have a heavy conscience. Help them to see you and what you've done on the cross, to forgive their sins, to wipe them clean. You said, as far as the east is from the west, our sins have been removed from us. Though our sins were like scarlet, we are now washed white as snow. God, this is a glorious truth that we have in the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray, amen.